So today is the room for doubt. We're going to get into, I think, a really important question that so many people have. And trying to wrap your mind around this is really hard. And that was, was Jesus all that he claimed to be? Was he truly the, the son of the living God? Was he God and man at the same time? Now, that is not easy to comprehend, but that's what we're going to get into. And in just a moment, I'm going to have a word of prayer for today's message. But also, uh, there's a little event going on tonight called the Super Bowl. Anybody heard of that? Yeah. Good. Well, one of the things, in all seriousness, uh, a good friend of mine brought this to my attention, is if you've been watching the news, is I mean, it's security high alert. Uh, and so there's a lot going on. It's not just an event. And so just pray for safety for our nation. So it's a, it's a, the world is watching us. And so uh, let's pray for God's, God's safety. Heavenly Father, as we, uh, we get into your word, we are just so thankful that uh, from your pages we find these claims that Jesus is the living Son of God. And so, Lord, I just pray that every word uh, today will bring glory to you. Uh, Lord, we also pray uh, we have this huge event every year in our nation uh, that the world is watching called the Super Bowl. And it's so much more than just a game uh, because it's a high alert. And so, Lord, we just pray for your protection and uh, we just Praise you for your presence, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Okay, I was thinking about this whole idea of uh, an opinion and a claim and the difference between the two. Every human being has opinions, and we are, are living in an opinion-driven world. If you go on YouTube, uh, there are just endless lists of top 10, name, name anything, and there's a top 10 list. From that, I don't know if David Letterman stirred that on, but everybody has an opinion. And really, our opinions can fluctuate. Matter of fact, it's, it's interesting when you have these opinion questions with friends, and a friend will say something like, have you ate at such and such a restaurant? And you'll be, no, oh, that's the best. You've got to eat there, and you'll eat there and be like, why did I pay for that meal? I mean, it's not even that good. Or they'll, they'll say, oh, have you seen this movie? It's the best movie ever, and you fall asleep halfway through it when you get it home. My daughter, my youngest daughter a few years ago, um, uh, her and her friend named Abby, they went to uh, see Les Miserables. I mispronounce it, I don't care. But anyway, she said, Dad, it is so moving. We cried all the way through it. We need to watch it like on Christmas Eve because I, I just want you to feel how special it is. And about 10 minutes in, I'm like, are they ever going to talk? I mean, it's all they do is sing. It's just kind of depressing, you know. And about an hour, she turned it off. She goes, you just don't get it. And I don't get it, you know, because what? That's your opinion. I'm like, let's put Braveheart in. You know, she didn't get that. All of us have what? Opinions. But there's a difference between an opinion and when you claim something. You see, if you claim something, it's more than an opinion. You're saying, this is where I hold a deep conviction. Like, I'm all in on this belief. That's claiming something. It just holds more weight. And we've all experienced what that looks like, too, to claim something. I experienced this when we moved to Bloomington the first time was in 1985. Now, I had heard that this area is crazy about basketball. I had no idea. I mean, when I got here, uh, matter of fact, my trial sermon, I, I, told, I thought it was funny. I told a joke, and I said, well, why don't I just throw in the chair? And I threw a chair across. It did not land well at all. You know, it's just, I'm like, they are pretty... <laughs> They're pretty intense about basketball. But the other thing that happened when I moved here, there was this book, maybe you heard of it, uh, called Seasoned on the Brink. Everybody was talking about this, this book. 
And uh, boy, I was reading, I'm like, this is really good. But there was one sentence in that book that everybody started talking about in the entire area. And uh, it was the sentence uh, where Bobby Knight said, I went and watched an eighth grader play who could start for Indiana today. Anybody remember that kid's name? Damon, well, you've heard the kid's name too, so Damon Bailey. And so I remember his freshman year when he came to play at Bloomington South, and it was like something out of a movie. It was this first time that he had started the whole game. And I remember about halfway through the game, everybody's watching Damon Bailey, and he lit South up for over 30-something points. And what I remember was nobody was talking about the game. Everybody kept talking about this may be the best player, high school player, we're ever going to see. Now, that was a bold claim that Bobby Knight made. And then what Damon Bailey did was, what? He proved him right. Now, every so often, and it doesn't happen often, that there is a bold claim like that. But today's claim is the boldest claim of all time. That Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. The living Son of God. And if you're wrestling with that, that's what we're going to get into this morning is three important questions about that claim. If you're taking notes, here's the first one is, did Jesus claim to be God's son? You always have to start with Jesus. Did he claim that he was God's son? And the answer is in Matthew 16, absolutely he claimed. In John it says, and the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to wrap your mind around what the disciples must have experienced. This is God, but this is a human. Like, I'm eating soup with God. I'm walking with God. I can talk to God. I can reach out and touch God. Could you imagine how their minds constantly were spinning? So it's important to say, what did Jesus say about himself? And that's why I love this text. It's one of my favorite texts defining the life of Jesus. And you need to know just a little bit of background, but let's turn over to Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And let's read this together. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now back up and you'll understand why this is so powerful. One of the things that Jesus did is many times he would teach parables. He would use life experience to make his lessons completely come alive. And so they had already, when you get to this point... Jesus is only nine months from his journey to the cross. So he's reigning this, this entire relationship in with the disciples. He wants them to clearly understand who he is and what his mission is. And they've witnessed him walk on water. They've witnessed him heal people. Uh, they've even witnessed him forgive. Now, if you forgive someone, there's only one person that has the power to forgive. And that's God in the flesh. They experienced all of that but they still had questions. So when he came to this region, and it's an amazing region, 
It's 120 miles north of Jerusalem. It's right at the base of Mount Hermon. And what is famous, what this mountain and this area is famous for, is this mountain had all these little, uh, first of all, it had this huge entrance for the god Pan, which is the fertility god. And then there were all these niches in the mountain, and people put all these statues of foreign gods up there. So Jesus stood at the base of the mountain, and he's talking to them, but he knows they're looking up at all of these little statues and false gods, and that's why he uses that setting to say, hey, who, who do people say that I am? Great crowd breaker. And then he gets it right down into their face, and he said, now, who do you say that I am? And as they look around, I love that Peter says, well, you're none of these. I mean, this is all about man's uh, pathetic excuse for false gods and statues. No, you, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And there it is. Jesus allowed him to experience what all of us need to experience. He's not a statue. He's not something you just every so often, he wants us to have a relationship from a distance. No, this is God in the flesh reaching out to us, wanting a personal relationship with us, every one of us. He is the living God, and I absolutely love that. And here's why that's so important. Every human being has to wrestle with that question, and you have to make that decision on your own. Nobody can make that decision on your own. If Jesus were to ask every one of us individually, who do you say that I am, it doesn't matter what your parents think. It doesn't matter what your grandparents think. What do you think? What do you believe? Because that's when it gets real. When Jesus Christ becomes real in your life. And that's, that's not easy. And all of us know the struggle of nobody can make you do anything. Do we have any parents and grandparents here? Raise your hand. Okay, how's that going? Okay, if you have teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So when I was around, I was eight, and I remember because I got a brand new Stingray bike, I was a bad man. And I had that, that bike, and I was cruising along, and I lived near a lake, and I was kind of cocky, and I was riding around, I saw a bunch of my buddies at this little beach swimming. The problem was, I'd been able to hide it up to that point, I couldn't swim, which is not a good combination when you live near a lake, okay? So... Uh, as I'm showing off my bike, they're like, hey, nice bike. Come on in for a swim. Oh, I can't, man. I'm in my jeans. You're a wimp. You can't even swim. Oh, yes, I can. And I ran, dove in. I hadn't thought it through up to that point. Dove in. And then I, I, in my mind, I'll just stand up, and then I've made my point. When I stood up, I, I, I couldn't touch the ground. And I was panicking, and I could still see the color of the lake. You know, I'm just, and then I felt somebody pick me up. And uh, it was one of my buddy's mother. Now, there's really nothing worse than being saved by a mother. I mean, and I mean total humiliation. I get on my bike, and I'm crying, and, and I am so, I'm enraged. I am mad. I'm embarrassed. And I remember throwing my bike down, and I told my mom, I will never learn how to swim. That is a dumb activity, you know, and I, she has no idea what it, and so she was worried, and about a, a year or so later, she kept talking to one of my big brothers, and she said, uh, if you take him to the YMCA, he'll probably learn how to swim. And I told my brother, I said, you are wasting your money. I am not going to learn how to swim. I don't know if you knew this, but I was stubborn when I was a kid. And six weeks, I never learned how to swim. They gave me a paddleboard. So I him with all these little bitty kids and me, paddleboard, 
And he's like, give the guy a certificate and get him out of here. You know, I couldn't swim. And I was determined, I will never learn how to swim until God brought something in my life miraculous when I was 15. You might want to guess? My girlfriend, who was 15, had a pool. And that changed everything. I'm like, I better learn how to swim, you know. But you know what I, I learned through that whole thing is nobody could make me believe that I could swim. Only I could make that decision. That's where a lot of people are in their walk with Christ. You have to make that decision. And what's sad is there's people that show up Sunday after Sunday in churches all over the world, and they'd never make that decision. They think, if I go to church, I really do believe that he's the living son of God. And uh, one of my favorite musicians years ago, his name was Keith Green, and Keith Green used to say, uh, going to church no more makes you a Christian than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It's true. Just because you show up and sit down uh, at church, that doesn't mean you actually believe he's the living son of God. But that's what I want to challenge you with today. The second thing as far as the claim of Christ is, did he back up his claim? Did Jesus back up his claim? Now, we all understand how powerful claims can be because we've seen claims that have been made uh, with sheer conviction uh, that honestly were bogus. Matter of fact, I read of a survey uh, that was done by the University of Virginia. It was, a, it was a, actually an experiment of uh, nearly four years. They took 270 scientists. Those scientists uh, took 100 random arbitrary psychological studies, and then they tested it for four years to see if the original claim of those surveys still held up. And here's what they found. Only 36% succeeded in the final testing. In other words, these claims weren't actually even true. They were getting a lot of funding for the surveys, but when they really got into it, they found a lot of falsehoods. We see that all the time. In 1974, some of you have no, don't even know what 1974 is, but uh, there was this guy named Evil Knievel. He was one of my heroes, and uh, that's why there were a lot of broken bones with a lot of my buddies because of him. But you may remember he claimed he, he made this ridiculous rocket without fuel, basically, and he was going to go over the Snake River. You remember that? And he crashed. He broke his nose, got a lot of money, but it was a ridiculous claim. And a lot of you remember this. Uh, do you remember New Year's Eve 1999 to the year 2000? And there was this little thing called Y2K. And uh, I remember the water we had, and we were debating whether we should get a generator. And I mean, we were, we were reading all the Left Behind books. I mean, we just knew this is it. We just knew. And then we stayed up. Dick Clark still looked pretty good in the day. We watched the ball go up. And then what happened? Nothing. Now, we experience this all the time. But then every so often, there are heroes, there are people who make claims, and you're like, I can't believe they were bold enough to make that claim, and then they came through. When Muhammad Ali knocked out Sonny Liston in the eighth round, he claimed he was going to do that. Joe Namath in 1969, uh, you had to talk about Super Bowl day somewhere. In 1969, right before Super Bowl III, he guaranteed a victory over the Colts, and they won that game, and it made him a hero forever. We know about claims, but listen to God's word. Isaiah 9, 6 is this, that Jesus Christ, he talks about the Messiah. The Messiah will come. He will be a mighty, wonderful 
counselor. In other words, 600 years before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth, Isaiah the prophet said, this isn't the kind of king you think it's going to be who's going to rule like you want him to rule. No, he's going to rule like a counselor. He's going to love the world like the world has never been loved before. Jesus himself in James 8.46 said this, that he was without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says that we have a high priest who is without sin so that when we're tempted, we need to understand he's been tempted just like us. Jesus is claiming, I am the son of God and I am perfect. But the defining moment is 1 Corinthians 15.7, and if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. Do we believe he's the living son of God? It all hinges on one thing, the resurrection. So I just want you to jot these down quickly. I thought this was good. It's the three E's that all believers need to fall back on when talking about the resurrection. The first E is simply this. The tomb was empty. It was empty. It's interesting that even the enemies of the cross made up a a false story uh, and tried to find false testimony. Why? Because it was empty. They knew they better come up with a scheme because the tomb was empty. We know the tomb was empty because if you look at the reaction of the disciples, I mean, here they were, they were just scared to death. Why? Because the tomb was empty. That was the game changer. The second E is eyewitnesses. From the time that Jesus rose from the dead, there were over recorded 500 eyewitnesses over a 40-day period of time. 500 witnesses. And then last, last of all is early. In other words, the word of Jesus and his resurrection spread early. It wasn't like 100 years later there was rumor. It was within months there was written dialogue about what had happened at the point of the resurrection. And that's critical. The other thing that goes along with early is the early decision the disciples made to follow Jesus after the resurrection is a big deal. And here's why. Years ago, I read this, and it's, it's always stuck with me. Charles Colson, uh, who is an amazing man, he passed away here just a few years ago, uh, uh, set up the entire angel tree over Christmas and did so many amazing things. Brilliant, brilliant man, who was one of Nixon's right-hand men during Watergate and spent some prison time. And when he was in prison and he was reflecting upon Watergate and he had given his life to Christ, he said... I began thinking about the disciples, and I realized, here's these 12 men. Here's these 12 men that were tortured and beaten. Many of them died brutal deaths, and they stood up for their Savior because they believed it with all their heart because they experienced the resurrection. And he said, there were 12 men around Richard Nixon during the Watergate, and there's about a three-week period of time, if they were all stuck to the same story, it would have blown over. But we all know what the history books read. Everybody ran for the hills. Nobody was going to go to prison on their own. And the whole thing crumbled. So his thing is, you see, you're not going to intentionally die for a lie. He says, we weren't even willing to go to jail. And they were willing to give their lives. Why? Because early on they knew, uh, I've seen him. I've experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the last is simple this, why does the claim that Jesus made to be the Son of God matter to us today? 
We've got this. Uh, Amy has run some copies if you'd like. Uh, Lee Strobel, in his book, Case for Christ, um, he shares this quote, and then he gives this beautiful rapid-fire uh, thoughts that he had when he gave his life to Christ, and I absolutely love this. Uh, and his quote is simply this, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. And then just like a journalist, he began this word flow of, here's what happened when I made that decision to give my life to Christ. Number one, if Jesus is the Son of God, his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. They are divine insights for which I can confidently build my life. Number two, if Jesus sets the standard for morality, I can now have an unwavering foundation for my choices and my decisions. Number three, if Jesus did rise from the dead, he's still alive today. He's available for me to encounter on a personal basis. Number four, if Jesus conquered death, he can open the door of eternal life for me and others. Number five, if Jesus has divine power, he has supernatural ability to guide me, to help me, to transform me as I follow him. And if Jesus personally knows the pain and the loss of suffering, he can comfort and encourage me in the midst of life's turbulence. Number seven, Jesus loves me and he has my best interests at heart. Number eight, if Jesus, who claims to be the son of the living God, is all that he said, he deserves my full allegiance, my obedience, he deserves my worship. So my question is, is Jesus the living Son of God right now in your life? Where is he in your life? What relationship do you have with Jesus Christ right now? Because he wants to live in your life. He doesn't want religion. He wants a relationship with everybody here. That's what he wants. He wants to be the living Son of God in your life.